Um, If you've got your Bible, please turn to James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Just two verses this morning. And uh, because that's enough for us. (laughs) And as we continue our series of sermons through James... We've come once again to a passage of scripture that is stunningly relevant for us in this moment that we live in here in America today. In this passage of scripture, God has something to say to us about how we talk about people we disagree with. uh, About how we talk about our opponents, our enemies, people who get on our nerves And isn't that something that we need right here in America? For some of you, this is going to be an important lesson in how you talk about President Trump and Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party. For others of us, it's going to be an important lesson for how we talk about or how you talk about Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or the Democratic Party. Maybe you're a student and you don't care about all that politics, and this is going to help you learn how to talk about the teacher's that really get on your nerves. Or maybe you have a neighbor that's unneighborly and very hard to get along with that keeps calling the city on you for doing this, that, or the other. Or maybe you need to learn how to talk about your in-laws or your step-parents. James chapter 4, notice the first sentence. And this is the theme of the whole paragraph, and it's the theme of the whole sermon this morning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't speak ill of other people. That's a literal translation. Do not speak ill of others. Do not speak against others. It means we must refuse to participate in any form of speech that mocks someone, makes fun of them, dishonors them. To speak evil against someone in this passage, it comes in a variety of forms. No Christian should engage in speaking or writing or listening or reposting something that shows contempt for another person, that is scornful of someone else. This is both public false accusations and private grumbling. Do not indulge in the kind of speech that is sarcastic or insulting. That's what this phrase is talking about. And let's admit it, there is an unfortunate habit in our society in this moment in time to complain about politics, about our teachers, about our students, about our neighbors, about doctors, about the government, about the corporation that we work for. Complaint and criticism have become, for many of us, our default stance. And sure, there are plenty of reasons for it. We, we all know about the gross abuse of power that's come to light in the last few years and that this gives us ample opportunity to complain. The revelations of sexual abuse in the church and the subsequent cover-up by institutions of the church. In the business world, for example, we saw the accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, the, how they enabled gross corruption in the Enron scandal of the 1990s and early 2000s, it it seems like everywhere you turn, you can find insiders using their power over outsiders. It's obvious why corruption leads to criticism. 
But when you combine the, the public exposure of corruption with a crusading spirit, with a sense that the battle we're engaged in is apocalyptic, that everything is on the line, when you combine pervasive corruption with a serious moral battle, when these two things come together, it can produce in people a habit of speech that is filled with irony and criticism and cool distance. And that way of speaking, God is telling us in this passage, is deeply corrosive. It's evil. In the recent political conflicts, too many of us have developed the habit of speaking against others. Too often, we are learning the habit of speech where we use wounding words, words that reduce, words launched at others with deadly and accurate cruelty. Now, why should we stop talking like this? Well, God gives us three reasons in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, three reasons that we should stop speaking ill of others. Now, I'm sure that we could come up with 30 reasons we should speak ill of others. But in this passage, we're given three reasons to cut it out. The first reason comes up in the second sentence of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks ill against the law and judges the law. Remember how Jesus summarized the essence, the fundamental core of God's law? What was it? What was, what was the center of all of God's laws? Jesus said it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here's the bottom line. God's law commands love. And when we speak ill of someone or mock them or use sarcasm to diminish them, we are in effect saying that God's law is mistaken for commanding love. It should rather have commanded criticism. Now, this is a sobering point for us because very often those of us who have a habit of speech of criticism, of speaking ill of others when they deserve it or they don't deserve it, we so often think that when we're doing that, we're upholding and safeguarding God's ways, the purity of God, the, the health of the community and justice in this world. But here we're told that's not what we're doing. We are not upholding God's law. When we speak ill of others, we are judging God's law, which commands loving speech. We're judging God's law as wrong. That's the reason, the first reason we should not talk critically, sarcastically, and mockingly of others. The second reason is that when we do this, when we speak of others in this kind of way, we are no longer doers of the law. This comes up in the second sentence of verse 11. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
So speaking ill of someone, whether it's through Facebook or over drinks with a friend, whether it's a full-on impassioned speech about some political issue or just the snide sideways remark, whether it's a passing, passing on a story or just a sarcastic humph, when we talk in these ways against other people, it's a failure to love those people. And Jesus teaches us that neighbors, whether they are friends or opponents, neighbors belong together in the love which manifests itself in mutual care and concern. The love that sees needs and reaches out to meet them. Our Lord's definition of neighborliness was given to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it leaves no room for talking down to others. It only leaves room for coming down to where the needy person is, identifying with their need, and giving up all self-interest in order to meet the need. Suppose I know something about my neighbor or about my Opponent. Suppose I know something that is true about them, and it's not a good thing. My job is not to publicize it or to privately berate them with it. My job is to go to them and lift them up. I must be the Samaritan to my opponent. My opponent is my neighbor. When we mock and disdain our neighbor instead of love and care for them, when we desert the path of love for the path of criticism and sarcasm, we are no longer doers of the law because the law commands love. And James's point by this moment in his letter is that it is at the heart of Christianity to be a doer of the law. And we don't get to pick which of the laws that is. The only way to be fully human, to become truly yourself, is through God's law. That's what our psalm this morning so beautifully celebrates. Psalm 19. I encourage you, if you have not memorized it, memorize Psalm 19. Every line of it. C.S. Lewis said it is the greatest poem ever written. Here in Psalm 19, we find the first half is, is about the sun. The second half, the, the, the sun in the sky. And the second half is about God's law. And it puts God's law parallel to the sun. And the point is that in God's kingdom, already launched and waiting for worshipers to inhabit it, Scripture plays the role that the sun plays in our creation. Wherever you go, God's law is like a moving tabernacle. God's law is where you can find the presence of God. When we read and pray and study to God in Scripture with our hearts determined to keep His Word and to obey it, we are in the presence of God and He will fill our lives and we will be changed and we will discover that God is our refuge and the place where we are at home is in God's law, in God's Scriptures, and that He will make His home within us. Christians, we must Hold ourselves responsible for what we say. We live our lives in the presence of God. 
No word escapes God's notice. God is always listening to everything we say. And some words are so offensive to God that they should never be uttered. Speaking ill of someone is so offensive to God, it should never come out of our mouths. All human beings are God's handiwork. Each person is a very precious work of God, a divine piece of art. And to make light of an artist's work within earshot of the artist is cruel. To demean one of God's precious artworks when God is listening, and he always is, that is to crudely dishonor the divine artist. So when we speak ill of others, number one, we are judging God's law as wrong. Number two, we're no longer doing this thing that is fundamental to what it means to be a human, to be a Christian. We are no longer doers of God's law. And the third reason, speaking against other people with illness, is it comes up in verse 12, and it's this. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. So when we speak ill of others, we are in effect saying that the law of God is mistaken in commanding me to speak lovingly. It rather should have commanded me to criticize. And if I were the lawgiver, it would have been that way. The law doesn't express the highest values. I know what those values are. And when you're doing that, you are usurping God's authority. This is our Old Testament reading. This is the fundamental sin in the garden. God doesn't know best. I know best. And if I were making the rules, I would have made a different rule. Move over, God. To value our own opinions above the law is to value, our, is to value ourselves above the lawgiver. To take up the position of judge, to judge the law, that's to elbow God off his throne. And when we're acting like that, where is the humility and the lowliness before God, which is the essence and key to real wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us whether we have ever thought about it or not, whether we recognize it or not, we've been impacted by our culture and our culture undermines our sense of accountability so much so. That when I said the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, for many of us, that is a very difficult phrase to make sense of. What do you mean I'm supposed to fear God? Notice how the paragraph ends, the last sentence of verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I've said this several times while we've been reading through the book of James together. I've reminded you that Soren Kierkegaard, that he, he loved the book of James. And one time when he was writing on the book, he said, look, at, at the heart of being a Christian is that when you read the Bible, you say to yourself, self, this is God speaking to me personally. So when you read this question, you need to hear God asking you, so who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, the answer should be, I'm a Christian. And so I live for you, God. And my main purpose in life 
is your glory. And how are you glorified? God, you're not glorified when I play fast and loose with my words. You're not glorified by my bad habit of not stopping to really understand my opponent. By picking on the weakest point of their argument and totalizing a claim about their character. God, when you ask me, who are you to judge your neighbor? This means... You're asking me to look at myself. Don't you see that? Don't you see that this question means we need to concentrate on our own sinfulness and not on the other person's sins? Do you see what God is doing here? He's saying, look, you've got a habit of talking about people. And God is saying, but who are you? He's trying to get you to stop looking at the people you're talking about and look at yourself. And to really say, who are you? What are you like? What is your character like? It means we need to treat other people with the gentleness and reverence that Jesus treats us with. It means we need to become deeply sensitive to the pain and brokenness of a creation that is yet to be fully delivered from the curse. It means God does things slowly. He created this universe in what? 14, 16 billion years? This world in What is it? Five or six billion years? Clearly, God works slowly. He's comfortable with eons to change something. He works slowly in our lives and we need to share in his patience. We're not asked to duplicate the epic work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world already has one very adequate Savior, and we are called to find our place within his mission. When we embrace this kind of humility, I mean, think about this. What does it mean about God that it's been 2,000 years and the sun is yet to return? It means that he's way more patient than you are. Than I am. The delay of the return of the Son of God is evidence to his incredible long term vision and patience. And when we can embrace that, when we can embrace this kind of humility that at the heart of being a human is that God is the creator and I'm the creature, when we can embrace that kind of humility, we can develop. Habits of patience and flexibility and tentativeness and awe and modesty that will help us to stop speaking ill of others. Instead of standing next to our neighbor in love, too many of us have developed the habit of standing over our neighbor in the place where only God should stand. So how do you answer this question that God is asking you This morning, I hope you're answering it with something like this. Who am I? I am a person seeking to walk in the lowliest humility before God. Because I know that that is the way of blessing. I have learned that the way down is the way up. And so I seek for myself. The lowliest place. 
We need to think about how we view other people, about how we live with the fact that there are people around us with whom we strongly disagree about very important matters. Our children's friends come from families that worship strange gods. We work alongside people whose convictions about abortion and gender, sex, and wealth are very different from our own. In restaurants and airports, we encounter lifestyles that shock our deepest sensibilities. And this morning, our Lord Jesus is calling us to think carefully about how we should talk about this. And the way he presses that home is by saying, and who exactly are you? Let's pray.